Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the finalists of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Michael Pryor, and I'll let him tell you a little bit about himself. I'm Michael Pryor. I'm a fourth-generation Japanese-Canadian. I grew up south of Vancouver. Um, I am a writer and teacher. Burning Province is my second book of poems. It was published by McClellan and Stewart and came out in March 2020. And I spend about, I I divide my time between Vancouver and where I teach out in Minnesota. This season, I've asked authors about the characters in novels they identify with or would like to be. This question has stumped a few people and inspires many different answers. As a poet, Michael didn't look to novels or stories for his answer. He turned to a sonnet instead. As a poet, I'm hesitant to give an answer that's based on a novel or story. How about this? I'd like to be the speaker in Patrick Kavanagh's poem, Epic, which is a sonnet. So it's kind of funny. It's a sonnet called Epic. And we usually associate epics with like huge scale, kind of like, you know, national or cultural narratives. But Patrick Kavanagh's sonnet, Epic, is about um, what it means to be to have fidelity to the local, to write about where one is from and how even like as the voice of God at one point, I think, um, or Homer actually, sorry. Yeah, the voice of Homer in the poem says um, that, that even the Iliad was made out of like materials of a, lo- a fight between local kind of like you know, city states. And so as writers, our job is to pay attention to the local, to pay attention to where we're from in many ways. Um, and so it's a poem that's all about making the local universal or making the local kind of global, um, which is, I think, a task I'm very interested in as a writer. Burning Province is a finalist for the 2021 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. And Michael starts our episode with a reading from the book. Well, I think I'll start with the first poem in the book, which is an ekphrastic poem, meaning it responds to a work of visual art. And um, the piece of visual art this poem's responding to is a, is a project by Kaylee Sumura, the, the Nikkei uh, artist, um, and it's called The Suitcase Project. And I first encountered this, this multimedia project when I was at uh, the Nikkei Center in Burnaby. What Isumura did is she went up and down the west coast of Canada and America and asked fourth and fifth generation Japanese Canadians and Japanese Americans to pack as if they were going to the camps. She presented them with the original kind of internment orders and gave them 24, 48 hours to pack and then came back and photographed what they had packed. And so the images are very stark and very haunting. People with like kind of the things that they would bring with them if they were going to be in a camp for four years. And so the poem's called 150 Pounds. The title comes from the BC Security Commission's kind of mandate that each adult uh, would be allowed 150 pounds of luggage and each child would be allowed 75 pounds of luggage to bring with them into the Japanese internment camps during the Second World War. And I should note the book focuses a lot on that. Uh, my grandparents, uh, my maternal grandparents, uh, were in a camp, um, the largest camp called Tashmi, which is just a couple hours outside of Hope. 150 pounds. In some, the luggage lies open like a mouth mid-sentence. In others, closed zippers grimace. What would you have brought? Slippers, a stuffed platypus, a gold watch on a chain, copper pots swaddled in bedding. The hypotheses that thinking can be things, 
that each decision shrinks the pained mind to the space inside a suitcase. Include lacquered chopsticks, silver forks, a hammer scarred by rust, the orders nailed to telephone poles and doors. Omit what you whispered then, most of what you've seen. I was given 48 hours notice, 24. I passed ice and pines and plains. I rode an iron serpent into the interior beside 400 others. It was humid, it was cold. If pain is remembered to be dismissed, if fear still seeds its rotting forest, this is a gardener's trowel, a blue skein of yarn, a violin, a ukulele, a ukulele, a ukulele. This is a porch light flicked on and off an abscess night. These are pear blossoms falling on the driveway like footprints in black ice. Memories, river stones metamorphic and worn. How many might an able-bodied individual carry through livestock stalls and mud into a bus, a train, into a tiny uninsulated shack? Most say the same. It could happen again. It is happening now. I couldn't make room for a dogless collar, a houndstooth scarf, a steeler and packed in styrofoam, a letter recording blood's divisive fractions. My father would not have come. My mother, my stepsister, my brother. What matters is not what you bring, but what you keep. She was there. He was too. I'm going to read just one more poem. It's a shorter one. Um, and this is about where I grew up and where I spent like the first 23 years of my life, um, south of Vancouver. Um, and it's also an elegy for someone who I miss very much. Auction. A house with a broken face facing the straight. An eviction pinned and fluttering against the door. A trawler's dry rot above the sea and higher a bristling wreath of gulls, their hollow marrow, their ampersand hearts. You passed from here as photograph. You passed as a current through storm down cables, intractable signals, curdling water, air. In a lifetime, this will all be bound by water, the geologist said, atop the crumbling peninsula while looking a little too pleased. Burnt vines frayed the trail. Blackbirds hemmed thorn and shadow. Whose lifetime anyway? His? Yours? We weary improvisers scabbing our hands in the bracken, shifting frames along the mantle. Our aim no more than the careful arrangement of dust. How carefully you would unstitch the thorns from my skin. Now, sallow headlights crawl across the kitchen glass at night as if in search of water. The sink fills itself with sand. I wanted to be the one to tell you this, to miss you best. When the land is gone, meet me where it was. Thank you. That's, I think 
that actually is interesting just in terms of where we're going to go with this conversation. Um, but I wanted to, to start uh, by asking you, I, I mean, one of the themes you explore and you mentioned it in the introduction to your poem and to your reading um, that you write about your family. And how did you feel about writing about your family? And did you speak to them before, after and during the writing of the, this collection? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the poems in the book, a lot of the book is about like, you know, my relationship with my family and my family's relationship with place um, and these kinds of like, and the cultural trauma of internment, right? And how that resonates uh, intergenerationally. So there are a lot of stories from my grandparents in this book, a lot about my relationship with them, because I want to always acknowledge that distance between, you know, me being a fourth generation Japanese Canadian and them being second generation Japanese Canadians. I think the book is interested in asking questions about the ways in which stories are moved between generations, the ways in which history echoes uh, between generations. Um, so yeah, they were a huge part of the process of writing the book, which also meant that I wanted to write a book that even though it, it's thinking through some very, I think, difficult traumas and difficult kinds of um, experiences and histories uh, of prejudice and racism, um, it's also, I think, a book that's rooted in love for my family, and I want that to come out, or I hope that comes out as well. Yeah. Did that make it a, a particularly challenging collection to, to write? Because there was, you know, there is that love for your family and that history. Did that put extra pressure on, or how did that feel for you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, this was a book that I think is much more emotionally direct than my first book. It's a book that says more, I think, just, yeah, explicitly. What it's what it's thinking about. Um, my first book used a series of masks and kind of like a persona. And this book, I think the speaker is almost always me or someone very close to me. Um, so it was a difficult process. Also difficult was negotiating like how these poems would make my family feel, right? There is an expression in uh, Japanese Canadian culture, Japanese American culture, shikataganai, which means it can't be helped. Um, and it's an expression that's repeated as a sort of mantra often by older generations of Japanese Canadians and Japanese Americans uh, in relation to the internment. This idea that you just have to kind of move on, right? The past is the past. And of course, this book is examining how the past has never passed. <laughs> so in some ways, it sort of contravenes that ethos or that mantra. And that's a, a difficult thing at points. And so in the writing of the book, there were decisions I made about what I was going to say, what I wasn't going to say, stories I was willing to tell and stories I wasn't willing to tell because of how they might make people in my family feel. That that saying is really interesting because in other books that are finalists uh, for the prizes this year, like the Diary of Duke Sang Wong, just the idea that because there was a desire to move on and move forward, we've lost uh, we've lost history and and it's hard now to get that back. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on how literature and poetry has shaped our understanding of uh, the Japanese internment during World War II and its after effects and the the generational intergenerational trauma yeah i think well i mean first of all yeah i think you know there is a lot that's lost um you know the idea that internment now is beginning to exist only in collective memory is something the book's also exploring right this idea that you know my grandmother passed away while i was writing this book which was sort of where the title comes from and a lot of the poems are elegies for her um and thinking about like not only what her passing means but what it means for that generation leave us right and all their living embodied memory that now exists only in the storm of story uh, <laughs> the form of stories and like um anecdotes 
um, that live within a kind of family mythology. Um, so yeah, so that loss, I think is something the book is really interested in investigating. Um, as for how Japanese Canadian, Japanese American literature has like dealt with internment, there's like a, a rich canon of work, you know, that's like invested in this. In Canada, we could think of the work of Roy Miki, Sally Ito, um, Joy Kagawa, obviously, right? Kerry Sakamoto, um, even like, um, so there's like a, there's like a long, there's a lot of writers who are grappling with this in different ways and thinking about it. Um, what I think is important is that it continues to be re-witnessed or reinvestigated or reimagined in literature because it, because as soon as it stops being grappled with, it kind of, it ossifies only into archive or it ossifies into kind of like the sort of myth that can be, that, that, um, that can be too, I guess, simple, um, <laughs> too um, flattening in a way. Um, so I think it's important that like, you know, the, the Nikkei artists continue to think through internment and continue to create work that like responds to it in different ways. Um, and also what I think is important is also acknowledging the distance between like, you know, someone like me and like that, those events, right? The generations in between the time that's passed. I always return to this. Uh, if you go to where Tashmi was in BC, the camp, the largest internment camp in, in the country where, you know, thousands upon thousands of Japanese canes were held, you know, it's now a summer vacation kind of like spot, a, a summer cottage community where like you can see lines of RVs and cottages where the, where the, the tiny tar paper shacks, uninsulated shacks once were. And so like that kind of overwriting of landscape, you know, in the same way that like there's been a lot of settler communities all over Canada have like overwritten, erased, you know, um, and like displaced indigenous people. It's, there's all these sorts of layers, transpositions, overwriting that's happening. And it's important for writers to grapple uh, with that kind of process and to like excavate in different ways. Sorry, that's a long rambling answer. At least that's what I feel is important for writers to do. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because in looking at all the books on, on the shortlist this year, there's been so many interesting overlaps because in Eve Lazarus's book, um, she writes about the Peony, and of course the Peony grounds, some of those buildings were used to hold Japanese Canadians as they were moved to internment camps. And I never knew that history. Like I've been to the Peony had beers there you know I've, and that's you know there's no there's nothing on those grounds that would remind us of this is what this was once used for yeah and i mean tashmi itself the largest camp in canada had no marker no memorial no notation that this was where it had been until very recently when like a private like citizen i believe created a, like a museum there <laughs> Um, you know, when I first went there, when I was writing my first book, I went on a two-week road trip with my grandfather through the province, um, which ended up being a long poem um, in the end of that book. But we went to every single internment campsite in BC, pretty much. And there was nothing, right? There's their fields, or now there are other things. Um, and yeah, the PE, definitely. I think even there's a um, TV series. Um, oh my gosh, I forget. It starred George Takei, and they filmed there. Um, and those at, at, at the Vancouver PE, actually. Yeah, it's uh, it's like there's a lot of histories that have been kind of overlain or forgotten. Yeah, well, and I think too with that erasure comes this like lack of understanding, particularly like where we're at right now with so much anti-Asian racism. It people seem to think that it's like sp sprung out of the ground or something all of a sudden, but it's been here for so long, and and uh, you know even at 
in reading another book, it was talking about um, where our relationship with prohibition has come from. And that, of course, came from our response to opium and th that kind of racism there. So it's like it's just so fascinating to me how these stories have been paved over. But we're we're talking about them now, which is important. I think it's yeah, I think it's a really exciting moment for literature in that sense. And that there's a lot of people doing really wonderful work the, to, to think through and reclaim and reimagine and like re-narrativize our understanding of the past and of like, you know, the ways in which various, you know, groups have been persecuted uh, in Canadian history, American history. I teach uh, Asian American literature. Um, we talk about kind of the oscillation, the historical oscillation um, between the kind of yellow parallelism, you know, what we're seeing now. It's kind of outright discrimination that stems often from an economic sort of situation or fear. An example, like in America, is in when the rise of Japanese car manufacturers displaced a lot of auto workers in Detroit and like, you know, American kind of like big industrial cities and like basically meant they didn't have jobs anymore. It led to a huge backlash in anti-Asian racism at the time and the murder of Vincent Chin. You know, we're, we're in another moment, I think, with the pandemic, with the rise of certain Asian powers, we're like... We're, we're seeing another moment of yellow perilism. So the oscillation between that and like the model minority myth, right? Which is a myth directly associated with Japanese Canadian and Japanese American communities. I think it was a New York Times Magazine article coined, coined that term um, in relation to like the way Japanese Americans had quotations bounced back after the internment. Um, and which is a way of course of, uh, of, just, of, of positioning and playing different, you know, minority groups against one another. Um, and saying like, why can't you be like these people? They've got, if they've, they, we did something terrible to them too, but now they're doing well. So I think it's, yeah, it's these ongoing cycles. And I'm hoping you know, that like, we're able to, to think through them in more interconnected and kind of um, intersectional ways, I guess, and realize that these things are not anomalies of the moment. They're cyclical and that they're all connected. Yeah. Something that I, I was really taken with when I was reading the collection was that you have this ability to combine beauty and density of meaning. And it's it there's such, you know, packed poems and so much um, layer and meaning. And I'm curious what your uh, perspective is on making a poem mean as much as possible in such a short space. And and how you layer the images and ideas into just one brief lyric. Thank you, Megan. I mean, that's really, thank you. That's so kind of you. And like <laughs> also, um, I think, well, there are several things I could say, I guess. I mean, I think what poetry does really well for me, at least, is it asks very complex, difficult questions. If I wanted to posit a thesis, if I wanted to give answers, I could write an essay and be clear as day in how I'm communicating things. Um, but I'm often very confused about these complex issues we've been discussing, right? And trying to figure out where I situate myself among them, not only being, you know, Japanese Canadian and having these histories in my family, but also being mixed race, right? And having another side of my family, you know, that's white. Um, and so poetry to me seems a medium that's very well suited to asking the complex, sometimes convoluted questions, you know, that are ones that I experience and think about all the time. Um, because, you know, a poem um, is what I think Brodsky said this, it's like the highest aspiration of language in many ways. And it's asking us to, to take the language not as informational, but as experiential. And so part of the way I wanted to do that in this book is I wanted to layer, as, you, as I think you've picked up on, like this, these, a series of motifs or images. 
and to increasingly um, complicate them as the book progresses. Um, I'm, of the, I'm of the belief that, you know, every good book of poems kind of teaches you how to read it um, and, in, and then continually challenges yeah, your way of reading as the book goes on. And so there's like images of fire, cardinals, you know, the pastoral um, uh, kind of tropes that permeate the book as well. Um, and so I'm, I was conscious of that in the editing process, so perhaps not in the process of actually generating the poems. These were just obsessions of mine that kind of came out. And then in editing and arranging, I spent a lot of time thinking about how to like create this experience of a book that would teach the reader how to read it um, and then continually complicate that process or, or ask them to expand their way of reading. My next question is probably maybe a little spinoff or is connected to that one, but your poems have in those layers, we've got Star Wars and pop culture and family history and sense of place. And I, I guess maybe just to expand on what you just said, like how maybe you can talk a little bit about your process with that. You mentioned that it comes more in the revision than maybe um, in the first draft, but yeah, I would love to hear more about how those ideas percolate and end up in a final final project and which ones maybe don't end up uh, making the final cut. <laughs> sure, and you're asking about particularly like the pop cultural kind of references and like the... Uh, yeah, and just like mixing things together in that way. Yeah, I mean, I feel like poems have to be omnivorous. <laughs> they have to like eat everything that comes away in your experience, right? Um, if something resonates with you, if an image catches your eye, there's a reason for that. We live in a world where like we're being bombarded with sensory information on screens, in our daily life. Um, and like the things you remember or that seem salient to you must be so for a reason. And you have to actually dig in and figure out why that is. I tell my students all the time that in the writing process, it's a process of discovery, right? You have to, you know, I usually throw out like the first like third of the poem, the first draft I've written because I'm writing my way into something. And so for like some of the things you're talking about, they were just things that like I couldn't get out of my head. You know, certain pop cultural things, certain things that stuck with me. Yeah, I mean... I do believe that poems have, have a duty to kind of have fidelity to, to your experience and to like not live on, to like be open to like a lot of things entering them in, in interesting ways. Um, so once I thought a lot about Star Wars as a kid, <laughs> and I thought a lot about like later about this kind of strange visual corollary between, you know, that last scene in that movie and the, traditional Japanese uh, cremations, which they carried out in the internment camps and which my grandparents recalled so vividly for me years later. Um, and I thought it's strange that I used to watch this movie with them. And then they also had this kind of like lived experience of seeing something similar. And we all know that George Lucas was stealing from Kurosawa movies and from Japanese culture um, in the creation of Star Wars. So these kind of interesting connections. Um, but yeah, I don't know, a lot of things just kind of I threw out a lot of poems in this book. It's a very short book, I'm sure as you notice. It was, it grew out of an MFA thesis I did. And I realized, you know, about after I'd written the thesis where the book actually needed to go. And so it meant a lot of like taking things out and a lot of rearranging and a lot of writing the poems that kind of needed to be written, which took time. Yeah, sorry, does that answer your question at all? Or is that just like a tangent that doesn't? No, no, it does. And I think it, it speaks to something I've kind of, heard from other people too because I'm always like something that I'm always taken with in in writing is is the details and those little moments that that kind of stick for whatever reason and Alex Olin talked about this where it's like you kind of move through life and things will come up like you're watching a tv show and it just kind of sticks and you don't even really know why or it just 
things find us for strange reasons and then they appear in our work. And I mean, with the, like the contemporary lyrics, so much of it depends upon a visual grammar, right? Um, at least that's what I'm interested in. My poems, I think, work through the kind of movement between images, which is not the way all poems work, but it's certainly what I'm interested in. Um, you know, uh, William Carlos Williams says, no idea about things, right? And Ezra Pound talks about the image as an emotional uh, and intellectual complex in an instant in time or whatever. Um, that's certainly that particular like take on the lyric is something I'm interested in. Um, and it's also, I think like my sense of like what attracts me visually has a lot to do with like how I grew up, where I grew up. Um, the book is very much like rooted in, and like where, in where I grew up along the Fraser. Um, and like, there's a lot of images that come from that particular place. And I would see BC in other places uh, as I moved for school. Um, there's a poem later in the book called uh, Poem with the Gift of an Ammonite, which is all about seeing the landscape of British Columbia in upstate New York, where, uh, where one would think you wouldn't, so. Yeah. You talked a little bit about your first collection and um, a, a bit of where this book came from, but how has your process evolved uh, from writing the first one to this one? And it, it does it continue? Do you find yourself continue continually kind of adapting as you work through poems, either single poems or working on a different collection? Yeah, I mean, I hope so. <laughs> I really hope so. Um, yeah, I like to think that this book is a kind of, it takes some of the themes that the, the latter half of my first book was interested in or had discovered and, and expands on them and intensifies them and, and goes deeper into them. And so, you know, this book, Eduardo C. Crow, um, an American poet who, who I really adore and who's been a really great mentor figure for me, talks about how you have to kind of find the gods of the collection. Um, and so one thing that has changed for me um, between the two books is like, who I'm reading and who I feel are the writers who are kind of like, I'm in conversation with in this book. Um, the forms and the, and the kind of like lyric techniques I, I want to employ and like, I feel like I'm trying to renovate in some way. And so this book is also, I think, a book that in many ways is kind of trickily more formal than my previous book. And I feel like that's kind of part of my, I hope, I hope growth as a writer, thinking about the ways in which, you know, in, in a poem, at least, you know, form is inseparable from content and the ways in which I can renovate form to bear the weight of my own experience, my own subjectivity. So I do feel like I'm trying to push somewhere new. And I feel like part of the process of getting, of, of writing the book is figuring out where those kinds of larger discoveries are going to be. And one thing for me, I learned about myself as a writer when putting together this book was how to choose the metaphors that are going to be metaphors in the book, not only for the content, but also for the craft. Um, and so you know, these are things that, that I needed to write the book that may not necessarily be apparent to, to, to most readers. One of my teachers at Cornell, Aishan Hutchinson, always talked about how in his previous book, uh, House of Lords and Commons, he was trying to create Babylon in Jamaica. And he's like, no one may ever pick up on that. He's like, but I needed that particular kind of like idea trope, whatever, conceit to, to write the book and to, to create the texture of language I wanted. Um, and so for me, I was thinking of things like the idea of folding. And you notice there, there are references to origami and like uh, paper folding a lot in the book. Um, but I was also thinking about how does one fold rather than break a poetic line? How does one fold syntax? How does one fold images into a poem? 
So there were certain metaphors like folding or like fire, um, the proliferation of things, um, the burning of things, smoke, that, that, that were important to how I was thinking about the actual writing itself, not just what was being written about. Yeah. Is the process different for you if you're working on kind of like a, a single standalone poem versus if you know it's going to be part of a collection? I don't know. I mean, I think I have these things in the back of my mind all, after a certain point. I feel like I, for Burning Province, I had written at least half the book before I discovered, you know, many of the things would, I would try to emphasize in revision or that would become central, uh, at least for me. Um, so it depends, I guess. When I'm working on a draft, like the first draft, all I want to do is follow the language mostly and follow the form and where it leads me and try and be as attuned to that as possible, you know, and trying to figure out the language that excites me and surprises me because, you know, if you don't surprise yourself, as Robert Frost said, you aren't going to surprise a reader. And so it's often just like following language, writing as much as I can um, and seeing where, where I end up. Did you get homesick working on the book? Oh yeah. I mean, but I do spend like half the year in, in BC or over half the year sometimes. Um, so I was homesick. I've been homesick since the pandemic started because I, I would normally be back right now. Um, and with my family, my sister just had a kid and I haven't met my nephew. I won't have met my nephew until he's like maybe almost two years old by the time this is all it's safe to travel again. So I, I miss, I miss BC all the time. Uh, I miss my family all the time. Um, and yeah, I've missed them a lot during the pandemic, but lots of homesickness, but I also felt that I write best about somewhere where, when I'm not there. So it, I think most of this book was written while I've, while I've been away, or at times I've been away, I guess. Thanks so much to Michael for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks to you for listening and subscribing to Writing the Coast. If you would like to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. On our website, you'll find information about our shortlisted authors, information about upcoming events like our gala viewing party, and details about how you can submit your books for the 2022 BC and Yukon Book Prizes. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Grant Boudet, whose book, Orphans of Empire, is a finalist for the 2021 Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.